In the studio this afternoon is British composer and double bassist Barry Guy that currently holds a position as honorary guest professor at RMC. Guy is at once a passionate student of early and baroque music and a master improviser and composer across all musical genres, an architect and Samuel Beckett devotee who, by age 13, was immersed in the life of a professional musician in southeast London. Guy has served as a principal bassist in virtually every major London orchestra, as well as Sir John Elliot Gardner's Monteverdi Orchestra, while regularly collaborating with such renowned musicians as Evan Parker, Mats Gustafsson, Paul Litton, Auguste Fernandes and Marilyn Crispell. Meanwhile, his compositions for large improvisational ensembles, as well as chamber and solo works, have been performed internationally by some of the world's finest musicians, and he himself has recorded a vast amount of albums, including several on ECM records. As a bassist, his technique is powerful and virtuosic. His abilities as an improviser, whether working in his own groups or those of others, take second place to no one as soloist or accompanist. He is playing his instrument to the limits of one's physical capacities. Yet he is able to translate that talent into the more formal settings of baroque duos with his partner, violinist Maya Homburger, the Monteverdi Choir, an orchestra, the City of London Symphony, the Münchner Chamber Orchestra, and most recently the piece Time Passing with the Camerata Zurich. This reveals a composer capable of great emotional intensity and drama, but also one able to match that with a sense of space and delicacy. His work as a composer draws upon a knowledge base of subjects as diverse as art and architecture, literature, history and music. Personally, I have always been of full admiration of Barry Guy, and I have also been lucky enough to be involved in several of his projects the last decade. I can only say that Barry is an enormous capacity with a broad artistic context. Always charismatic, passionate, encouraged and generous. A real inspirational force. He has shown me and many, many others how practice informs theory and theory informs practice. Having turned 70 a couple of years ago, Barry continues to follow his artistic visions with remarkable energy. Always faithful to his musical tastes, equally faithful to his friends with whom he continues to play and for whom he continues to write music for. Welcome to the studio, Barry. Well, thank you, Torben. I think you will, I'll have you write my next next book or something if, if we need a biography. Uh, yeah, you've, you seem to have cut across the whole gamut of the musical life. And uh, what I would say is that I've I've had a... A pretty um, phenomenal lifetime being involved with um, passionate colleagues, whether it be in Baroque music or in uh, 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 improvised music. So I'm one of the lucky people. Uh, we, we, we always say to ourselves, um, well, Maya and myself, we, we talk about it's not easy to, to find a, a life that is constant and daily renewing um, with the particularly with the financial problems which most musicians seem to have to deal with on a daily basis but we've we've somehow managed to sort of bounce from um, from one 
project and idea to the next. And, and I think this is, perhaps it's to do with when we entered the musical, the musical lives uh, of our, our colleagues, because I was fortunate enough to, and this was when I was working with a, a firm of architects, um, mainly on a, a Baroque restoration or Tudor restoration um, buildings, which as a young man out of school, it was a, it was a, a real joy to be, I don't know, involved with the visual as well as the kind of aesthetics of, uh, of architectural practice. But at the same time, I was, um, I was, I was uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I was running a dual life of, um, of, of um, evenings studying music at uh, Goldsmiths College. And there I met uh, some really quite interesting colleagues. I was invited after, a, a, I suppose you would say, a year doing evening classes to write a piece. I involved um, improvisers in a cadenza. I suppose it might be, you might say it was the precursor to the London Jazz Composers Orchestra, i.e. Uh, pieces of written music where improvisation took a, a, a particular notable part in, in, the, in, this, in this piece. What was it called? Uh, Perceptions, I think. Um, and, you know, at that, that point, uh, because the circumstances led me to Paul Rutherford, who led me to Trevor Watts, who led me to John Stevens and the Spontaneous Music Ensemble. And almost after that first performance of a so-called straight piece with improvisation, I was invited up to the Little Theatre Club, where... I suppose for many, this was the start of, in England, of the European, I mean, the, the English, uh, but the pan-European idea of uh, of free improvisation. Um, and it was all taking place there, as well as it was taking place, I think, here in, in, in Copenhagen. There was a club here. Was it the Montmartre, I think? Yeah. And there was, um, there was, there was this sort of toing and froing of international musicians, but... Uh, I was sort of very much London-based, whereas some of my colleagues were, were already travelling quite a lot. But somehow there was this milieu which was building up a, a kind of an energetic sort of life force of uh, uh, to do with improvisation. And, and to be honest, you know, I came out of a really quite strange situation because having played all this sort of Dixieland and swing stuff, I had a very... A short honeymoon with uh, playing in a modern jazz group where, where we were doing sort of what we bebop stuff, I suppose you would call it, and um, and then suddenly I was whisked off into the into the little theatre club with and and I must say, first moments were almost frightening because I loved it so much, but I didn't know what the hell was going on, and uh, and probably John Stevens thought. And Trevor Watts thought the same. So it, sometimes I was thrown out of the group. Then you get a phone call and say, oh, you can come back in. Uh, yeah, but just leave a bit more space when you bring your bass here and play with us, please. And so, you know, there was a there was a kind of an aesthetic that I was learning about about uh, working with colleagues and about leaving space and uh, and also, crucially, discovering sonority, the different types of sonorities, which would, on the base, which would work with my colleagues. So it was a constant sort of pushing and uh, pushing into new areas of communication and, and ways of playing, I guess. <laughs> Thank you. 
So it's, uh, as I understand it, it's a mix of the um, aesthetics of the music that uh, attracted you, but at the same time also a way of being in the music with yourself and others. I think it, the thing that, in, that fascinated me was the way that uh, people could work together on, on, on a kind of an interesting basis of based on, I suppose, ego in the sense that you had to make a statement but also humility that you had to hear the other person. And then you had to analyze or think about how you um, put the, or how you bring musical statements together that make sense. And it was also the aesthetics of uh, compositional structure within improvisation. You know, it all sounds a little bit um, sort of high, um, high aesthetics at the moment, but it's, it's you know, but you, we did actually have rather um, rather deep discussions analyzing what happened the night before, so to speak. Normally it took place at the bottom of the little theater club in the pub and uh, John, John Stevens might say, well, Barry, I think you just played too much last night or you did this or you didn't do that. And then, then Rutherford might pipe up and say, well, I think you didn't do this and you didn't do that. So there was, it was in a way it was sort of, slightly confrontational but it was also clearing the air and it, it was a kind of an honest marketplace about uh, analysis of uh, of uh, what was it a developing music and I, I i was late into the game because these guys have been at it for a few years i was i was the real novice is this uh, early 70s uh yeah definitely yeah yeah, yeah. probably the, the first time i played with them i think was 68 so yeah, so um, it all seemed to be perhaps it was sort of alchemy or something like that. <laughs> it was I, I I wasn't quite sure how all this sort of fitted together, but it all seemed to work with what I was doing on let's say on a parallel stream was listening to to or understanding a little bit about contemporary music. So I was listening to uh, music of of Zanarkis and Berio and Boulez and Stockhausen because those were the, um, the the high flyers at the time. And uh, I was also very much involved with contemporary music or group within certain groups that existed at the time and with composers. And it all seemed to be running parallel in terms of how the bass develops within this, within musical spaces and or musical ideas. And it for me, it didn't seem too much difference whether I was playing with a spontaneous music ensemble or I was playing a, a piece of uh, of Xenarchist, for instance, you know, because uh, what we're dealing with is, is the technique on the instrument, advancement of uh, advancing the sound of the instrument, looking into the sonorities of the instrument and to see how it works within the context, the context of, uh, of, of a group, uh, improvisational group or within the context of a say uh, e-music straight music group so it was all a very exciting time of sort of bouncing from one side to the other and this was all being tempered by after the architects i i, I think i spent three years there and the music became so, such a powerful force in my life um I was persuaded, actually, by a Dixieland bass player that, oh, Barry, you you should go and um, uh, to the Guildhall School of Music and uh, go to a music college and study music properly. And I didn't even know these 
places existed, you know, uh, really, because that was not on my radar at all. I was either at the architect's office or, or just playing, uh, playing in London. And, um, but <clears throat> I, to prepare myself I, uh, for this, to follow up this idea, I prepared myself a little bit by, by having evening classes with uh, uh, John, uh, James Edward Merritt, the principal of the BBC Symphony Orchestra, who was the professor at the Guildhall, and I went there sort of once a week and uh, and and uh, learnt the how to play the bow properly and and do do what should be done to get into a, into music college. I was also taking part time, as I, I said, the, at the Goldsmiths College. I was doing the compositional side of things, so. Somehow it was all coming together, leading me away from the uh, the architectural practice, because I, I there was a time when I thought I should go into the uh, into study at full time. But it, as it happens, I ended up in the Guildhall School of Music, and then thrown out the other end um, after four years of of practical studies and getting really um, so interested in all of the music I didn't know about. It was very interesting to go into a music conservatory where all of the players, the young players, were brought up on a diet of Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, and etc. I, I I came in there with spontaneous music ensemble and um, and Sonarkis as and Stravinsky as my my sort of uh, compass points, if you like, and all all roads lead from from there. So it was uh, four years at Guildhall School of Music was a was a um, was huge discovery for me about all these other musics, and I just fell in love with music, per se. You know, whatever, wherever it came from, if it was good, I loved it. <laughs> And early, early music, Baroque music, uh, when did that kick in? Well, that sort of really pretty much kicked in once I was uh, outside of the Guildhall School of Music uh, in, in a professional capacity because mm. there was a transition point of play. Of, it was a time when uh, a lot of little chamber orchestras were starting up. And then uh, I, I got the call to join John Elliott's Gardner's what was then the Monteverdi Orchestra, choir and orchestra, which became the London Baroque Soloists eventually. Um, so my early um, days in Baroque music, being immersed in Baroque music, was kind of interesting because it was on the on the transition between modern instruments and old instruments. And I remember we did the Monteverdi Vespers, the sixteen ten Vespers, for uh, first time, and um, in London. There was, uh, the bows came from uh, Manny Hurwitz. There was a huge uh, box of bows for violinists, but the violins were the ones they pulled out their case and they were all modern violins. So you had this this hybrid of old bows, but modern violins. And I I was, uh, I found or purchased a, an old bass and put gut strings on it and found a very, very cheap uh a Baroque or Renaissance bow, and which John Elliott Gardner used to call my cucumber for some reason, and because it looked like a cucumber because it was bent, 
And uh, so this was, uh, although I got my own back, uh, I got so annoyed with him calling. He says, well, Barry, you've got your cucumber, I see. And uh, I I thought, okay, one day uh, in in the same week when we were recording, I actually brought a cucumber. Um, We were rehearsing and I was bowing the strings with a cucumber. And it, it took him a little while. He said, well, can we have more bass, please? And I just sort of looked up and... And, and did the motions with the cucumber. Um, let's say he was displeased <laughs> by my joke there. So, but it, let's say it was the early days, and we, it was everybody was discovering how to articulate the instruments. And this was, in a way, also for me, was interesting because it was running parallel to all. I was still doing improvised music up at the, the little theatre club, and 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 by then I was working with the Howard Riley Trio and and Rutherford and De Bailey and the Iskra nineteen oh three. So again, this sort of dual musical process was happening but I was I was as well as discovering lots of ways of playing with the um, with the free improvisers I was also finding new ways of finding ways of, of articulating baroque music and with the instruments the bows the um, I did as much reading as I could about the performance practice but you know again it was everybody was encouraging each other to the next phase, if you like. And so it's got very, very, so much more sophisticated now. And, but in a very quick time, we had, uh, it, be- it became, you know, it was the, it was the major new musical force uh, in terms of recording because everybody wanted, all the record companies wanted their versions of, of, the, of, of Bach or um, of Monteverdi or Gabrielli, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, it was, a uh, it was a most thrilling time. And then uh, so because we were so busy recording all of this repertoire, then it became quite difficult to even uh, sleep, you know, because we were virtually in the studios or traveling or uh, um, researching new stuff. It, it became almost Im- impossible to find time to do anything. So in some ways, the, the improvised music uh, was, was more difficult to... Um, to set in the diary really because we were doing so much traveling and so much um recording and and improvised music came was was still trying to for me Charles still trying to survive in in the in the small moments that I, I i could um open open up the diary and say yes yes but but there was a time actually where evan parker my dear friend uh, said to me, Barry, we're losing you to this whole um, this whole sort of commercial market of of early music. We don't play enough. You're, you're just always on the road with these people. You're always recording. Just give it a thought. So uh, eventually, I when I, I mean to cut a long story short, when I met Meyer, we were. I suppose that basically I was in the middle or starting the Haydn symphonies. I probably the, the complete Haydn symphonies, and uh, I and we agreed that this is crazy. We move out of town, mm-hmm. and and look into our uh, improvised music possibilities, chamber music possibilities, and uh, and and back off the studios, the studio stuff. So, um, and I think that was probably the best thing we did. I mean, in a way that allowed us to, to think and appreciate. Um, musical processes and projects in a different way.
the time you're describing now, um, both the early music, baroque music movement with historic uh, performances, mm, mm. the free improvisation mm. popping up uh, in in London and and, mm. and Europe in general, uh, and a strong contemporary music, classical contemporary music uh, scene as well all mm. over. Mm. So had these. Uh, three different domains or communities, uh, any relationships to each other? Well, I suppose or the, were there yeah. other, other players like you uh, kind of maneuvering no. in and out of these scenes? I don't think, uh, I don't think there, were, there were any other players maneuvering their way through all of these scenes. Maybe two of the scenes or, you know, uh, but not, I mean, you know, you had some jazz players that were involved in improvisation that would be studio musicians as well. Yeah. Mm. So, for instance, I mean, mm. in studio, commercial, commercial thing. But I don't know many, that many um, musicians that would be involved with, say, the um, the free improvised music and would be playing Baroque music next moment. Because, you know, I mean, there's, I suppose the, the common denominator of all of this is the double bass. It's an amazingly... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, well, it has has the power to move between all of these different musical states, and it's very versatile. It has the ability to uh, to create contemporary sounds, according if you want to. That is, I mean, advanced sounds on the instruments, alternative sounds. But um, this was all accompanied by. Uh, in, with my um, ambitions to do whatever the musical project, it had to be done with with uh, absolute perfection as much as you could. So I always wanted the right instrument for the for the baroque music, the right instrument for the cla classical music, the right instrument for the uh, improvised music group. So I had about seven different bases from different mm. periods at one point, with all of which were sort of functioning uh, in whatever project that were. It, that we were doing at the time so they had i i was fortunate in that in those days the bases were you could almost buy them for nothing so um i i i made a list once because of somebody asked me how many bases i've had and i think i've got through about i don't know 14 or 15 different bases over the times because they come and go that they that they've become the currency for um some projects i mean for instance when i was running the london jazz well i'm still running the london jazz composers orchestra but if i wanted something uh important a recording uh there, when there was no there was no funding to be had from any government agency arts agency i would sell a bass and then suddenly mm. you had a recording possibility so in a way amortization i suppose is the word here it's but they were amortized by you know you buy them in one in context and then when that context ceases to be, it's standing in a corner, and you think, "Wow, now we've got a uh, we can do a, a composition of mine with the London Jazz Composers Orchestra." Uh, anyone want a bass? And some, quite often, somebody <laughs> did want a bass. So then we had a recording, and I, I found this this to be a actually, you know, it's upcycling or recycling or you know, parts of work and an accumulation of material for that work actually allowed a, a new direction to uh, to develop mm. what about this um 
connection uh, with the contemporary classical music field? Did did the free improvisation attract any interest at all at the time? Not then. There was actually quite a, a rigorous divide but that uh, improvisation was seen as a as a as a uh, a subject not even worth to- uh, discussing in terms of the, the straight music or compositional side of things, and. Uh, it was always i mean if you I, i've got a little portfolio of comments from boulez from zanarkis from berio from fernihau um all at some point has have said or fernihau for instance said that uh, improvisation is unstable chemistry as far as this was his phrase unstable chemistry uh but the other the other composers i've cited there all had a problem with improvisation because most of the stuff that, that they heard was probably bad bebop or something or or maybe even just swing music but it was that their, their let's say their rationale was that the composer has to have full control of the music and never hand over control to mere musicians and so they had a very very low opinion of musician the ability of musicians to be able uh, to be creative and i fa- i found this anathema i mean i sort of i i thought it was so pompous and arrogant that uh, that this 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 state of affairs was was kind of handed down through the years through the decades and it was a it was a um, something i i almost wanted to uh, fight against in some ways with the London Jazz Composers Orchestra I wanted to say hey you know we can be a composer we can put a structure together but we can do it with improvisation improvisation areas that can actually provide the energy the movement forward and actually be the structural foundation of mm. a piece right. and um, you know you kind of if, if, if I play I mean I, I worked with Zanarkis uh, heavily on the Therapse piece after he had written it for Fernando Grillo, and um, solo double so bass the solo piece, piece. Yeah, yeah, solo double bass piece, and it was a joy, you know, the man was fantastic, but um, it was actually only a, a, a few year a year or two after working with him that I came across his statement about improvisation, and he he thought that was, I, I, I think he was of the opinion that there wasn't the intellect available to mere players you know that sort of thing we were lesser as improvisers we were lesser beings so i had this kind of conflict internal conflict going on all the time when i was working with composers uh, but then 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 you see at the, at, the, at one time when i was very heavily involved with the contemporary music scene in london uh, the society the promotion of new music we used to have these music weekends um and and I remember, I, because I was on the weekend, I think we invited people to write double bass pieces for me to premiere at the um, SPNM weekend. And then I got one piece of page that said, and it said sort of various um, instructions and a few notes. And then there was uh, the major part of the piece. I remember this box, and it said, "Please quote from your London Jazz Composers Orchestra for ten minutes." And the closed box, and then and then then there was a few few sort of notes at the end. That was the piece, and I refused to play it. And I said, "Well, look, first of all, you haven't identified what pieces from the London Jazz Composers Orchestra would be 
uh, appropriate for me to find a way uh, to place them within your piece. I said, I think as a composer, you've been very lazy. So this was the other end of the spectrum that some people were seeing that, oh, this is easy, easy food. You know, just mm. take a, a few mm. ideas. Let, let's raid the London Jazz Composers Orchestra songbook. And, uh, and I've got my piece sort of thing. Or he thought he had his piece uh, until I said I won't play it. But, um, but, you know, that's there was this, there was on one side this arrogance of that we, that, that uh, improvisers had no um, intellect or, create, or could not create a substantial piece of music um, freely out of uh, out of uh, creative uh, thoughts and impulses and then there's the other side that say uh, that said that that we can sort of nick this and just use and throw it in our piece now what i would just say that in recent years um that ensembles contemporary ensembles have embraced um improvisational procedures yeah, i was going to ask yeah and i think this is uh, there's there's quite a few uh, ensembles around that where a certain amount of freedom has come in and players have got more familiar with procedures and and also creative principles on their instrument and i think as the as the uh, instrumental abilities of 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 players have um, have, have got more colorful uh, have got more uh, technically what well, i mean you know, classical players have always been technically brilliant, but they're, let's say the alternative or extensive extended language of in instruments seem to be coming into the mainstream as in the last 10 years or so, maybe even longer. But uh, there is a kind of a healthy scene out there. Uh, but on the other hand, there is, there's, here's another strand that's coming in that organizers see this as a nice way of sort of getting a little, um, a little more commercial in their presentations, perhaps, you know, say, uh, oh, let's have a little bit of jazz in this or something, mm. or, you know, in inverted commas. So this is seen as a, um, a, a, a not an easy way out, but a, a kind of a, a smart-ass move move to, uh, to find another public, perhaps. Or maybe I'm just cynical. <laughs> <laughs> but do you find a, a change of attitude um, from the younger composers these days? I find a change of attitude from younger musicians, yeah. which is good. And, uh, you know, from the, the, of the opportunities I've had working with young um, students, uh, particularly, interestingly enough, in the, in the uh, improvised and jazz side, I mean, for here at the, in the Rhythmic Conservatory, for instance, the, the standard of playing and uh, abilities is very, very high. And uh, they're also, I mean, when I say abilities, abilities to assess musical situations. And um, I, f I find the one doesn't, you don't have to read them the, the textbook. They somehow mm. can decode what the intentions are of, if I'm the composer, they can sort of decode from the musical events themselves and the my ambitions as a composer to 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 create a piece where uh where you know i want their creative input but they seem to they seem to realize that and i i think this has been a a, a, a huge change since mm, when mm. i i first started this thing i, I think even in so-called uh, classical players there's a lot of players now that are very interested in improvisational procedures 
um, most of the time it's sort of modified by the teachers who don't like to see their their young protégés getting stuck into some improvisation because it was spoiled their technique or something. Uh, this is this is sort of particularly for string players. You know, I know they're they've. Uh, professors are very covetous of their uh, of their prodigies and uh, if they see them skulking off to play a little bit of improvised music or something like that it's uh, they've sort of read the riot act mm. quite re mm. regularly i reckon Which brings us to uh, what you have done this week and the performance tonight of uh, a piece um, RMC commissioned <coughs> a yes. year ago. Uh, and the piece is written for a mix of jazz improvisation players and classical straight players. As, uh, the piece uh, is for string quartet woodwind quintet percussion mm -hmm. and a uh, big band you could say big band yeah. Yeah. yeah which is basically the same players as my london jazz composers orchestra yeah three trumpets three trombones tuba five saxophones right yeah piano bass drums so this is a, uh, this is a collaboration then between the dkdm here in, in town for, yeah. for the classical players and yeah. and, uh, and our jazz improvisational players uh, could you tell us a bit about uh, your thoughts uh, when uh, when taking on this commission. Yeah, well, for me, this is a, it's it's uh, it was one kind of resolution to a dilemma. Uh, the dilemma being, how can you have a completely free situation, but with utilizing a um, a, a, a a classical music group. So I just had to devise a score which actually sort of broke down certain boundaries and broke through certain prejudices and uh, and allowed us to to work as a three-way conversation so and that really started off in 92 that really started off my whole interest in graphic scores and molding graphic scores to groups or or the uh, or the ambitions of certain groups so whenever I'm asked to do a composition for a say a straight music group I say do you like improvisational procedures or do you want everything to be absolutely written out note by note or would you prefer some graphics etc so i try and break break it down find out what players want to do uh, themselves how how they are what their temperament is in terms of uh, being confronted with the improvisational moments etc so this was the first moment here at the rhythmic conservatory that i was i was uh, lucky enough to be able to not only do the big band thing, but also do this hybrid hybrid piece. So imagine my delight when when I was asked to, uh, when the commission uh, was muted about uh, um, thinking about a piece that would include conservatory musicians as well as the rhythmic conservatory um, jazz musicians. And uh, so this set me thinking about how we bring these two areas together. And I suppose what the, the main, one of the main things that I had in my mind was that I wanted to integrate, somehow find ways of pulling the, the um, conservatory musicians into the world of improvisation and have them 
search a creative part of their brain, which is different from the interpretive side of music making. I wanted them to work with the improvising musicians and actually hopefully find a, uh, a discourse which will be mutually beneficial. So um, first of all, I had to get the inspiration and the inspiration comes from uh, glass blowing, which is kind of an odd thing. Glass blowing is not the thing you think about every day um, or see every day. But I happened to see a, uh, a DVD of uh, a fellow called Dale Chihuly. Dale Chihuly is a master glass blower in, in uh, Seattle or Seattle area. And uh, he had for 30 years worked with, um, as an artist, bringing on board lots of uh, different disciplines, glass disciplines, to work with him in the studio to find new ways of blowing glass in either bowls or big, uh, multiple objects or, um, or, or glass pieces that almost looked plant-like. It was or serpent-like even. And so I came across this DVD of when well, he was invited to Tacoma in, uh, in Washington State to a state-of-the-art facility. It was basically an auditorium of where um, people were invited to look at the procedure from a gallery Look at the procedure of glass blowing and the f and how it worked with the furnaces, the people b blowing the glass, manipulating the, the molten glass into art objects. And this was over a sort of four-day period. And he brought together colleagues from 30 years before to work with him on this. And I found this this particular presentation so uh, I found it so exciting because you're working with uh, in dangerous territory of of molten glass, moving glass, but at the same time creating an art object out of it. And everybody, and each of his, what they call the gaffer, which was the, the uh, let's say, the, the number one assistant with the, uh, with the other assistants, which may number anything from two to five different people working on a particular art object, uh, they had to work together, but they came from different slightly different disciplines, but there was one person at the, in the middle of it, which was Dale Chihuly's ideas. So I, I thought, well, when I looked at this, I got so excited by the way people can work together, big egos, but humility at the same time. And I thought this is exactly the same process that we have when we're working with improvisation and composition. I come along with a composition, but I'm hoping to bring everybody on board to give their interpretation of the, or creative um, input into into the piece so I used um, in in this particular I don't know it was a four or five day event they covered I think 13 different glass blowing styles I used let's say 12 of these as as a structure for the piece so I, I can't say each section of the piece refers it does refer to a piece, a type of glass blowing, but it's uh, the glass blowing itself only in a couple of cases. For instance, for instance, in one of the vessels that they made, it was called Machia, where there were lots of different colored glasses introduced into, into a molten um, cylindrical wavy object 
but because of these little spots of glass in there, it, it sort of encouraged me to write a piece of music which actually had little spots, moments of, of sound coming in. So this was, a, say, a direct influence. But there was only one or two places that I would say, uh, Fiori, for instance, the last section, is, is almost mm, serpentine. Fiori, uh, if you see the, the video, you know, they look like plants, uh, almost serpent-like growing up in, the, in a rainforest or something. And, uh, and I, the last section of uh, Hot Shot, the piece I've written, uh, has all of these, these um, serpent-like lines which are in uh, counterpoint to each other. So we actually have this complexity. It's like walking into a into a very dense forest and seeing all these beautiful colors just uh, growing away and doing their thing. And I've tried to replicate that in the music as well. So, but but the twelve sections gave me uh, the starting point to imagine where the sections might or the colors might change between each uh, each uh, moment and how are they what. Uh, what students could be involved in changing these colors. So, you know, we had the, the straight ensemble, we had the jazz orchestra, and in some of them, they, they actually work together, which was my ambition, that, that they are being pulled into a, everybody's pulled into a different, different area. So being, you have been rehearsing uh, four rehearsals now, right? That's Monday, correct. Tuesday, yeah, yeah. Wednesday, yeah. Thursday, and yeah. tonight uh, we have the concert in a bit. Yes, yes, uh, yes, yes. How have the students reacted to, to the scores and uh, this demand for creativity from the classical players and how do they collaborate together? Well, as, as always, it's the first day. Day one is always uh, nervous because... Nobody's ever really looked at the piece. It doesn't matter how long you send the parts. Uh, how you know? I think I sent the parts several months ago, but not everybody can find time to look at everything. So a lot of it is sight reading, and it's it's like dragging a a, a leviathan up, you know, trying to get it back, get it into life, you know. And uh, it was first day is always terribly frustrating, but with signs of promise. Day two, it's amazing what a night does. Some of these things, some of the ideas had locked into place technically. So once you get the technical side of things happening, then people feel more comfortable uh, when they have to sort of improvise on top of it or within it. So it's an incremental process, which is, uh, it's not for sure that it'll work, um, but uh, it depends so much on the attitude of the, of the uh, participants and I have to say that we've got a great team and everybody's responded very positively. Nobody fell asleep in the rehearsals. And it's very interesting because on a daily basis, I, I went home and in the morning before we had the rehearsal, I went through the score and there was always uh, something that happened the day before that suggested, okay, let's modify this. And I think this is the wonderful thing about this score. You come along with the score, you've got all the pages there. I send it to you, Torben, and... Uh, this is my score. But hell, you know, it's, uh, it's a score that has to be pulled apart as well and modified and uh, even bits cut out. I think it's incredibly important as a composer, for me as a composer, to have, uh, to be sure of the material, but take uh, suggestions from players. Uh, some of the players have come up, have come up with really 
uh, good solutions about the best way of realizing a section, uh, what they can do in it, how they feel best in it. And I'll take all this on board. And Maya's been great because she's uh, she is my silent ears. She sits outside and we discuss the score at night. And she said, well, from what I hear, uh, this is not happening how you want it. And I think I know, she would say, I think I know what you want. But because I'm trying to get through the whole piece or uh, do it in a sort of a global sense, I sometimes miss some details. You know, I'm not I'm not a, uh, a conductor that uh, that is um, routined in going into fine detail. I like the big gestures and let everybody sort of find their way uh, of dealing with it sort of thing. And that, and let's see what comes out at the end. But the important thing is that the scale score is flexible. And within that, all these 12 modules, they all have their, there's always the moment to, um, that, that a part of it can be changed. Mm. So I've been uh, lucky enough to, uh, to be sneaking in and out of the rehearsal. I can see uh, a huge progress uh, from, from Monday, right? And it right, seems right. like the players are really now also taking in the music Right. Uh, having an overview and, and how to contribute to each situation. And it also, I think this piece is a wonderful example of, we, we started this talk with your background yes. into music and the, the, I mean, the huge diversity. And I think also this piece represents exactly that. So um, we have to go now. We actually have to for go our sound check, <laughs> and uh, I'm really excited for the performance uh, tonight, which we will, by the way, will uh, record and document, very and fine, share with okay. others that can't be okay in the church tonight. So thank you very much for well, coming by, and good luck. And thank you for inviting me in the first place. <laughs> Pleasure.